Well, in his commentary on the book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, scholar Richard Pratt tells a story about someone who supported his ministry of training people for gospel work in poor countries. He writes this, quote, a couple of years ago, a friend called me on the phone and said, Richard, I've got some money. Do you want it? We talked for a while about the kinds of ministry opportunities in which uh, the money could be used. And in the end, he gave a large check and we devoted it to the work of the kingdom. I saw my friend recently and thanked him for the blessing he was to me. Thank you for the gift, I said as we left. We're using it to serve a lot of people. Then he responded in a way true to his Christian character. That's what the money is for, he replied. He believed that. God had given him success and money, but he understood that God's gifts to us are to be used in the service of others. That quote from that commentary that was written a few years ago um, resonates with me. And the reason it resonates with me is because the church that I was serving in before we came here was the recipient of a gift like that. So my predecessor had a friend who was an inventor, and he was a very wealthy man. And he, he was getting older, and towards the end of his life, he said, I, I, I want to give this money away. I want to give away what I have. And so he wrote a check for $1 million to my previous church. Church didn't have a building. They were moving around from different locations each week, sometimes meeting on Saturday nights, others on Sunday nights, sometimes Sunday morning. But they were always at the whim of whoever was hosting them. So if, if someone else needed to use the facility, that church got booted out. And so this man, who didn't attend the church, chose to remain anonymous, says, I want to give this church a million dollars so that you could go out and get a space of your own so that you have consistency in your life. Now, as a recipient of that a few years later, it was wonderful to not worry about where we were going to meet it was wonderful to have a place where we could go that was ours, that we could do things that we wanted to do with it. The reality is our church was young. We had a lot of young families, a lot of people who were new to the country, a lot of college students. So we would have never had the money to pay for something like this on our own. And likely we couldn't even afford rent. But this man, this anonymous man, a man I still don't even know who it was, blessed the church and he will leave a legacy for many years after he was gone. To this man, money was a way, it was a gift for him to bless others. Pratt continues in his commentary after he gave that story. He says this, The Christians at Corinth had many gifts of the Spirit that they used in worship. But these gifted believers had lost sight of the purpose of their gifts. They thought their spiritual gifts were their, for their own pleasure. Paul reminded them that every gift from God is intended for service to others. This is the pattern we've seen throughout 1 Corinthians. This, this pattern of, of, of Christians, especially those in the local assembly, must be known by their love for one another. See, I'll make this argument in a minute that this passage here, and even in 1 Corinthians 14, is not so much about spiritual gifts. It's far more about love in the assembly, love for one another in the congregation. And this is what Paul is saying. See, I, I don't know any Christian, though, who would disagree with that statement, who would say, no, love, love inside the congregation doesn't really matter that much. And then I'd ask this question, then why are churches so divided? Why are we so quick to fight over things that don't really matter that much? 
Why, why are we, and I say we, not just this church, but churches in general, why are we so quick to fight or to defend ourselves? Why can't churches just unite around the gospel? See, when you read Paul's letter, letters to other churches, you see how important church health was for him. The church is where we go to be equipped and edified. It's where we go to be trained and to be sent out as missionaries in a hostile land. And when the church is divided, our communities see that. When a church is fighting over preferences, our neighbors see that we are not loving. And in fact, they see that many other groups have found a way to get along and the church can't seem to, so the church really isn't that necessary for me. I often hear pastors and other Christians bemoan the rise of secularism and postmodernism and all those other isms that come into a church. And they say, well, that's the reason the church is declining. That's the reason why people aren't interested in church anymore. That's the reason why church attendance has dropped from here down to here. And I think those are part of it, certainly. But I think the bigger reason, just being honest, is that people who are now rejecting the church, now people who are, who are going through this, this process that's new of, of rejecting everything that they've learned and everything that they've taught, I think the root of that problem comes from the fact that they did not see love in the congregations that they grew up in. Ask someone who's under 40 who used to go to church and that doesn't come to church anymore and ask them, why is it that you don't come to church? All I see is hypocrisy. I see someone standing up in front and saying, you should be doing this, and then they don't do it themselves. I see Jesus telling us to love one another, and I see people in the churches, they don't do that. So we claim to follow Jesus, but then we're so quick to sow the seeds of division. We break fellowship over these non-essential things. See, the world sees our lack of gospel unity. The world sees my lack of gospel unity. My neighbors know that I'm the pastor. Maybe I shouldn't have the sticker on the back of my car, but I do. This is First Baptist Alcoa. My neighbors see when I don't treat my children with as much respect as they deserve. My neighbors see my short fuse with my kids. My neighbors see when I get irritated quickly. My neighbors see the frustration that comes out. My neighbors know that churches, and my church in particular, has difficult times. And they see when there's not as many cars in the parking lot as there used to be. Our neighbors see that and they wonder, what's going on in there? Why is this happening? The world sees our lack of gospel unity. The world sees our lack of love for one another. And this is really at the core of who we are as Christians. Jesus says, they will know you are one of his followers. By what? Your knowledge? No. Your gifts of service? No. Your, your, your gifts of tongues and your gifts of prophecy? No. Your preaching skills? No. They'll know you by your love for one another. This is kind of the center, the hub, the nucleus of all of Christian life. It's, it's your love for one another. This is the important part of this passage Truth be told, in a passage like this, I could go in a couple different directions. Could focus on tongues and prophecy, and we'll do that in a minute. 
But what I want to build on here is that what Paul has been saying for pretty much the entirety of his letter comes in verse 1. First two words, pursue love. Think back through 1 Corinthians, all the first 13 book, chapters of this book, and think through those instances and, and ask yourself a question. Is this church in Corinth pursuing love? The church was divided over leadership. People had their favorite teachers, and so they aligned themselves with, with this guy or with this guy or with someone else. In chapter 3, Paul warns the members that they are heading on a pathway to destroy the unity of the church. The church was allowing and possibly even advocating sexual immorality inside the congregation. They, they still had connections with their previous life, or maybe they thought that, well, now I'm a Christian, I have Christian freedom, so I can go do whatever I want. It was so bad that Paul had to tell them that they shouldn't even associate with immoral people to not even eat with them. Members of the church were suing one another. They were taking conflicts that should have been handled inside the congregation and sending it out into pagan courts. Some members were celebrating their freedom by eating food offered to idols. To some in the congregation, doing this was a, a sinful practice. To others, it was no problem at all. And Paul criticizes this church because they're not loving. They're not loving one another. They're basking in the freedom that they have. Well, hey... I've got freedom to eat whatever I want, but no, not if you're harming another brother or sister. The church had members who were struggling with idolatry. They were taking part of, in communion before everyone had a chance to arrive. There were disagreements over the spiritual gifts. Now, here's what I want you to think through. Was this church in Corinth a church where people pursued love? Doesn't sound like it to me. But, could we say the same thing about us? Are we a people, a church, a local congregation who is defined by our pursuit of loving one another? Now, if we look back, and, and I've only been here a little over two years, if we look back at a little over two years, and we look at our church, what would we see? Well, we, we, we would see that we've done a lot of good things for people. We've seen times of counseling. We, we, you would see that there have been moments where people were sharing the gospel with their neighbors. And, and you would see these wonderful things. You've seen people who were cared for when they were sick or they were hurting. And as elders, we, we do our best to be available and transparent of what's happening inside the congregation. And so you think, well, we're okay then. Now, I'm not going to list anything specific. But think through in your mind. All of those instances that, that you've seen, maybe over two years or 20 years or even longer than that, in, in your church, wherever that may be, think of those instances where you did not see love as an, as an example. You, where you didn't see love in the center of what was happening. And just so you know, this happens in every church. There is not one church that's loving enough. There is not one church that can be perfectly defined as a loving congregation or a congregation that pursues love. And we know that because we're sinners and we're still here. So as long as there are people who are sinners in a congregation, there will be problems. We know that. But Paul still says, pursue love. So based on what he said in the first 13 chapters, what does this mean to pursue love? 
Well, to pursue something means that you chase after something, leaving everything else behind. So we see this in a dating relationship. If, if, if a boy pursues a girl, that means all those other girls that he may have had thoughts about are no longer there. He's pursuing, hopefully, his future wife. Leave everything else behind. Pursuing love then means that you've left behind your own desires and what you think is best so that you can be a blessing and you can love someone else. And this makes sense. This is the theme of Paul's letter. Paul's saying this, look, I know what you want. I know what you think really matters, that you think what you, you, you desire really matters, but love just matters more. Look what he says in verse 1. Pursue love. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Now, we'll flesh this out a little bit more in a moment. But Paul wants the church to be encouraged to desire the spiritual gifts. Why? So that the entire church can be blessed. In chapter 12, Paul talks about how we're all members of one body, that we're all growing together in holiness. And then Paul says this, especially that you may prophesy. The church in Corinth, as many churches today, have a desire to get the showy gifts. The, the gifts that are put on display for others, the gifts that stand front and center in their church or in the community. The church in Corinth loved gifted teachers. They, they wanted access to these gifts. They, they wanted to be able to speak in tongues. They, they wanted to prophesy. They wanted to do these things. Why? Not to build the church. They wanted to do these things so that they could build themselves up, so that they could feel better about who they are. But then Paul says that they should be desiring the gift of prophecy, and this is the question, why? Again, keep this theme, building up the local church, building up the local church. It's constantly coming here. Prophecy could do something that other gifts could not. In verses 2 and 3, I'm asking this question, who hears? Because this is really what the, the issue is. If you've got a gift, if you've got some kind of gift, if your gift on that, you've done those spiritual inventory tests, if your gift comes up as hospitality, your gift is not there to make yourself more comfortable. If your gift is mercy and compassion, that's not to show yourself mercy and compassion. If your gift is teaching, it's not to stand in front of the mirror and teach yourself. You have been given gifts so that you could give them to others, so that you could be a blessing to others in the church. And this is the theme. Looking back at verse 1, Paul says he wants the church to prophesy, and he wants to treat that higher or above and beyond speaking in tongues. This is because prophecy is given to build up the congregation. The gifts you use in corporate worship are not just for you. They are for everyone. Look at verses 2 and 3. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. I mentioned last week that the only theological debate that I remember as a kid inside the church was over speaking in tongues. I, re I really don't remember any other issues happening, and maybe that's because of where I'm from. I'm from Virginia Beach, which if you don't know, that's where... Pat Robertson is, CBN. In my community, uh, we had a, a, a unicorn church. It was a Southern Baptist church that also was charismatic. We also had a Presbyterian church who were generally not charismatics, who were a solid church, but very charismatic. 
So maybe that's just my culture that I grew up in. But it's a question I think that we need to ask. Because we're held to the Bible standard. And the reality is that if we're doing something that's not what the Bible says, then we need to correct it. Or if, if we're doing something that the Bible says don't do, we need to correct that as well. The Bible is our standard. So before we go any further, let's talk about what tongues are. Some would say that tongues are only given to preach the gospel. Tom Schreiner, a professor at Southern Seminary in Louisville, says this. Prophetic speech has more than one purpose, and so does the gift of tongues. Acts itself indicates that there is more than one purpose of tongues. When Cornelius and his friends in the Ephesian 12 spoke in tongues, they were not preaching the gospel to Peter and Paul, respectively. The gift wasn't functioning in exactly the same way as it was in Acts 2. In the case of Cornelius and the Ephesian 12, they were probably praising God in tongues for their salvation. So, we've read Acts, and you've read Acts chapter 2, where, where the, 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 the people were in the room, and the, the Spirit of God comes in, and people start speaking in, in different tongues, and we've seen what happens in Acts, where people are able to speak the gospel and speak truth in different languages. This miraculous work of the Spirit... But then we see here in 1 Corinthians 14 where it sounds an awful lot like what our charismatic brothers and sisters would say is a spiritual language, this private prayer language. So is there a difference? Well, in Acts 2, the languages could be translated, and it seems on the surface that 1 Corinthians 14, those tongues cannot be. It seems like what was being given were ecstatic utterances, not decipherable language. So I believe that Tongues were given for a few reasons, to authenticate the ministry, to say that that person, there's no way that person could be doing that on their own, so we're, we're going to trust in what they're saying, that's one, and then the other reason was to be able to preach the gospel in a way that people could hear. It's kind of like if we went to some foreign country that none of us knew the language and all of a sudden, boom, we were able to speak, to proclaim the truth of God's word to people. But... The Greek language, when you start digging in here, when you start seeing tongues, the, the word tongues actually is translated to language. It's a, it's a known language, not ecstatic utterances. And as we keep going down the trail of what tongues are, remember this, that the gifts of the Spirit are not the purpose of this passage. Really what the main purpose of this passage is is not to make a theological defense for whether tongues have ceased already or whether they will cease in the future, but rather this should anyone take pride in speaking in tongues or any other spiritual gift? That's really what Paul's asking here. Now, I've listened as men and women who have said they're Christians make the claim that you are not a full Christian or you're not a, an obedient Christian if you do not speak in tongues. If you haven't received this second baptism, and if you haven't received that, then you're not fully experiencing the power of God. I've heard that. And I'll say this, historically and biblically, that's a dangerous position to be in. Remember what we saw in chapter 13. Tongues will cease. They are not eternal. There is no need for tongues in eternity, right? We, but love is eternal. He's saying that, that so tongues, prophecy, preaching, all of that stuff will one day go away. It's more important to have love for one another and for a stranger than it is to have a host of spiritual gifts. And at the end of verse 3, Paul gives three benefits for the church that receives from prophecy. So again, when we're talking prophecy, we can use prophecy in a, in a modern way too. We could say, well, a prophet is saying, thus saith the Lord, right? It's someone who's proclaiming what God has said. 
Prophecy before the canon of Scripture was closed, prophecy had a a little bit different purpose. And so we see what this is. At the end of verse 3, there's three benefits from someone standing in front of the church and saying, this is what God says. First, prophecy builds up the church. This is edification. It's what I hope that you get every week from from my teaching. I hope that you, you hear this and you're built up. Your knowledge is increased. Second thing, Paul, this is encouragement. Another word we use for this is exhortation. You're taught right doctrine, and you're exhorted to go out and do something about it. It's a a challenge to be changed at the point where now you go from here to, to actually going out and doing something based on what you believe. Finally, Paul says that prophecy brings consolation. This means that words of prophecy are given to comfort those in the church who are hurting. Now, before we go on about prophecy and tongues and all the, the stuff, I want you to picture this. We're in this young congregation in Corinth. There are people who've only been believers for at maximum a few years. They're still learning about the faith. They don't have the completed Bible. They're getting letters from Paul and other people are writing letters to the church to instruct them. They have the Old Testament and they have it how it's pointing to Christ at every turn. But they're a struggling church. During the the gathered worship, lots of stuff is happening. Distractions all over the place. Sin has been ignored and the the worship is disorderly. There's no rhyme or reason to what they're doing. Now, in our situation, let's, let's bring this to 2021. Imagine that if as I'm preaching every week, some of you stand up and say, that's wrong, that's wrong. Nope, what about this, what about this? Some of you may want to, but that would be disorderly, right? There's nothing good that's going to come from from that. And and that's better for a classroom, but nothing good comes from this happening. Now, imagine this back to that church so you can kind of see the sense of of why this would be frustrating to the members of the church. Now, you're back in Corinth. People are talking out loud during the sermon. People are making noises. People are distracting. People look at each other lustfully. I mean, all this stuff is happening. Now, in our day and age, it would be more like someone in a church service watching a service from another church on their cell phone. That would be distracting, wouldn't it? Well, for me, it would at least, but that would be extremely distracting. Now, do you think that someone getting up and making noises that sound like babbling would do any good for the local church. With all of the chaos that's happening, all of the, the noise and the distractions, and then you have people on the sides making weird sounds, or at least sounds that we can't understand what they are. It would contribute to the disorder. It would become a distraction for the congregation. But what if in the midst of all of that, someone stood up in front and says, this is what God says. You can imagine quiet. It would get people's attention. It would calm the congregation to hear what God is saying. Now, here's the big question. Could this happen today? Possibly. Maybe, but as I've said many times over, I'll put my hope in what the scripture says versus what any person stands up here and says. And I hope you do the same thing, by the way. Just because I've got some letters after my name and just because I have a title and just because I stand here on Sunday does not mean that I'm always right. Don't ever trust what a preacher tells you unless it lines up with what Scripture says. Don't ever trust anybody 
unless what they're saying lines up with what the Bible says. This is our standard, not me, not a prophet, not someone speaking in tongues, not someone who says they have a word of knowledge. That's not our standard. God's word is our standard. The Corinth uh, church in Corinth did not have the completed Bible, so they relied on these things. Letters from Paul, visits from teachers, tongues and prophecy. The point that Paul is instructing the church to do is how to worship well and worship orderly. And we'll get to there as we go in chapter 14. For Paul, the church matters. For Paul, the worship of the church matters. And the point that we see in verses 4 and 5 is this, who is edified? So who hears? One another. Who is edified? Same thing, one another. Verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now go back to that scenario that I described. Church service is chaotic. Multiple people are speaking in an unknown language and there are no interpreters to translate what they're saying. To everyone but the speaker and maybe even the speaker too, it all sounds just like gibberish. But the one speaking in tongues feels a spiritual high from that moment. Some of my charismatic friends will tell me, and they've told me this before, that they feel uh, something special when they speak in tongues. And so I, I sent a message to one of my best friends, a guy I've known since high school. He's a faithful pastor, loved man. He's one of my best friends. And he says this. He says that there is a profound sense of peace, purpose, and power when he prays in tongues. And the, the next line he says, with that kind of alliteration, he might be, even be a Baptist at some point. He says that when he prays in tongues and when he speaks in tongues, he feels this, this peace, this, this profound sense of purpose inside that he didn't have before. So Paul's not saying that tongues are bad, at least not to the church in Corinth. But what he does say is that when someone speaks in tongues, they're just edifying themselves. They're not building up the church. So in my illustration, the person speaking in tongues feels a sense of closeness to God that they didn't feel before. They're speaking in what they believe is a heavenly language. But that's not our purpose as a congregation. The gifts that you have been given, again, are for the benefit of someone else, not for you. See, tongues are exciting. I can understand why someone who speaks in tongues, it would be exciting for them. And if you've never heard someone speak in tongues around you, it, it, it can be a little shocking, but it also, it's intriguing. Sounds that you've never heard coming from someone's mouth are, are coming out, and so it's intriguing to hear this. And certainly in the early church in, in Corinth, it would have been very exciting. So regardless of where we stand on this issue or where you stand on this issue, if tongues are still valid and if prophecy is still valid for the church today, do you think that either one of those would be beneficial for the gathered worship? That's the, the big question. See, Paul is saying that you can speak in unknown tongues, but if you do, do them in an orderly manner, which means don't do it during the service. Don't do it when you're gathered together. Paul says this, it's better for you to keep it private so that you don't hinder the church when it worships. Paul doesn't want anything to disrupt what we do right now. He also says this, 
that tongues are more important or tongues are better or greater, or excuse me, prophecy is greater than tongues, functionally more important. You ask why? Well, if someone gives a, a prophetic word, everyone in the church can hear it. But if someone's speaking in tongues, it doesn't matter if there's no, prof, no translator. None of us are going to understand what's being said. You'll see this word greater in verse 5. It's not that the gifts are greater in rank, that we can go through and say, well, this gift is better. No, this gift is number two. This gift is number three. The word greater doesn't mean that the one who prophesies is greater, but it has a greater effect on the congregation. It builds up the church. We, we would say this. Charles Spurgeon, when he was giving a tour of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, took some people down to the basement. And there were people before the service praying. And Charles Spurgeon said to these visitors, he said, this is the powerhouse of the church. Prayer is absolutely essential for the church. However, if someone stands and teaches a lesson or someone prays in front of the church or if someone sings a song, that's going to have a greater impact than you praying in your house, right? All of it is wonderful. All of it is beneficial. But some things are better for the church as a whole. So, probably muddied the waters even more for you this morning. But I want to leave with a few thoughts that may clear this up. First, the purpose behind Paul's writing is undeniably the importance of the local church. Paul is giving us a standard by which we are to conduct our business as Christians, as followers of Christ, to what we are supposed to do inside the assembly, an orderly worship. Second, this is the question you're probably asking again, and I've given answers before, but I'll go a little deeper today. What do I think about the secondary information, particularly the gifts of tongues and prophecy? As I've said before, I'm open for it to be valid, but I'm extremely cautious. And here's why. Anytime someone gives a prophetic word or speaks in some unknown language, we have to be guarded. A great deal of damage has been done by people who say they're speaking for God. Could tongues and prophecy and other miraculous gifts of the Spirit be valid for today? I guess. But I don't put any hope in it. And this is the difference. Whether they're valid or not, whether they are still for today or not, I don't put hope in this. The Bible is the source for what we need to know about God. Nature does tell us about God. We see how small we are in comparison to how big he is. Our conscience tells us about our sin. Yes, we can mute it, but it's still there. Others can speak truth to us. I, I've been the, the beneficiary of some of the things that you've said where some people in this church have come up and said wonderful things to me and you had no idea what was going on in my life. And yet you spoke the words exactly that I needed to hear. I don't think that was an accident. You often will edify, exhort, and console one another. But all of those must submit to the will of God through his word. Here's why I'm cautious about the validity of these gifts today. If God's word is enough for us, why do we need anything else? If the Bible is enough for us to know about God, our sin, our need for a Savior, the fact that Jesus became man to live and to die for us, and that if we trust in him through repentance and faith, that we are guaranteed security in our salvation, why do I need anything else? I've heard too many people tell me they have a word from God, and it's not true. What they said does not come to pass. Could this be what... Well, 
Maybe, but I've only experienced two responses from someone saying something to me, that they have a word or they have a word of knowledge or a prophetic word over me. Either it is not from God or it is and it lines up with what Scripture already says. Anything else may just be human wisdom guided by Scripture or just something nice that someone says. The practice of these gifts may be encouraging, but think about how exhausting it would be if someone constantly had words from the Lord and we had to constantly decipher whether they're authentic or not. I want my life to be directed by Scripture and by nothing else. It's God's Word that we build our lives on. Now, if you're not a Christian, um, I hope I made some sense today. The Christian life is not easy. Studying theology is not easy. Dealing with these passages are not easy. And, and for me, honestly, I, I struggle with humility at times, but I will be humble in saying that I am certain I'm wrong on many things. The study of theology is not to get it all 100% accurate. We're never going to be able to do that. But it is that constant movement to grow in our knowledge and love of the Lord more and more. But the reality is none of this matters. None of this discussion matters if you are not a Christian. The Bible says, Jesus says that you must be born again. This doesn't mean that you're going back into your mother's womb a second time. No, it means that you are recreated into the likeness of Christ. That you are born into the family of God. This means that you recognize that you broke God's law by your own sinful choices. And there must be a standard. Imagine if there were no standard. Complete chaos. There has to be a standard. Now the question is, everyone would probably agree that there is some standard, and most people would say, well, it's their own standard, but that's ridiculous. I believe that the standard that we must follow is the standard that God has set. The creator of all things has given us a standard, right and wrong, and in fact, he is that standard. And if you don't meet this, if you don't live up to that standard, eternity apart from his grace awaits you. This is where we sing about God's wrath being satisfied. God's wrath is waiting for you if you do not trust in Christ. Now for the Christian, Jesus took that wrath that was intended for us. And he carried the weight, the burden of our sin on his shoulders so God's wrath could be poured out on him so that we wouldn't have to suffer and that we could be made right with the Father. For Christians debate over these spiritual gifts Second, maybe even third-tier issues, meaning that I don't think they should divide us. I can name brothers in Christ that I would have no problem in preaching in this pulpit who would disagree with me on this. I, I would have brothers in Christ who love the Lord and lead people to the gospel and, and work on the mission field and serve the Lord with all they have and they give their entire lives but would say, Ryan, I disagree with you on some of these things. That's okay. You don't have to agree with me. You don't have to be robots. You don't have to, to do all of these things. You don't have to agree with all of my secondary or third level issues. But those arguments mean nothing if we don't have our standard correct. It's God's standard that matters more than any of these spiritual gifts. If you've never turned from your sin and turned to God, giving your life to him, do not leave here today without examining your own heart. After the benediction, I'll stand right here and I'll stay as long as you need. Your response to the gospel message is the most important thing that you could ever do. 
Being a Christian means that the standard, that, that we're all trying to achieve somehow, we're all trying to meet that standard, we're all trying to be better people, that standard has been met by Jesus. That we get to live for him and serve him and serve others because of the freedom that he's given us by removing the burden from our shoulders. This is the gospel. And as we discuss these and, and other non-essential issues that we talked about today, let's always remember as believers, as Christians, to show grace to one another. I believe that God is glorified in us when we continue to show grace to genuine brothers and sisters who don't share all of our convictions. And really, isn't that kind of the point of what's happening in 1 Corinthians? Yes, Paul's giving statements. Yes, Paul is saying, this is what you must believe. But isn't he saying that all of that must be undergirded by love? That love is the thing that connects us all together. Even when we have those minor differences, those second and third tier differences, that love is what keeps us together, that love binds us together so we're not quick to run. We're not quick to divide or, or to separate. We are saying, no, the gospel is what unifies us. That love should be the driving force of our lives together. Would you pray with me?